Hey everybody, it is episode 94 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris and Steve coming at you from Austin, Texas on a cool fall-ish day for us. We're super excited to be coming back at you. We're also excited to have a special guest joining us today, Jason Brooks. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Glad to be here. Jason is one of our coaches here at Rogue. He is primarily a trail coach by training and... Also, race director for Spectrum Trail Races. We've, we've had his wife on, Mallory Brooks, talking about her Wonderland Trail FKT and talking about running as a female. And so now we've got Jason on. He's one of our coaches, coaches our trail group, is now working with our Team Rogue athletes as well, and is helping out sort of a new kind of rogue business that we're working on. We're calling Rogue Virtual, which will be more one-to-one type virtual coaching online and so we'll talk a little bit about that and if you're interested in potentially getting some one-to-one virtual coaching via jason we'll talk about it at the end on how to potentially tap into that but super excited to have jason on really interesting guy and definitely a talented coach but our topic for today is appropriately going to be about trail running we've yeah We've never really, I mean, we've talked about it here and there. We've talked about it as an alternative for people to try and dabble in, maybe if they're getting sick of the roads, but we honestly haven't given it a lot of credence. And so we wanted to talk today about with Jason as a trail expert is how to think about training for a trail event. We're going to kind of specifically focus on ultra trail events. We won't necessarily dial into the difference between a 50K or 50 mile or 100 miler, but we're going to talk broadly about trail training for an ultra and how you should think about that, how the principles might be different versus the road and hopefully educate you on if you're interested in trail or if you're in trail, how you should think about optimizing your training there. And because we just recorded our Berlin recap to yesterday that we posted last night, we are not going to give you any current event topics today. We're just going to drive right into this or dive right into this and talk about trail running. Now, the first thing, Jason and Steve, that I wanted to cover off on before we dive into the specifics of training is sort of the case for trail. Why somebody who might be a road runner might consider trail for either a little bit of a window to kind of take a break during the year and, and mix things up, or perhaps consider a conversion to trail and doing a little bit more trail. And so I just wanted to talk about reasons why somebody might do it and what might be the differences that would be intriguing about trail racing versus road racing. And I will give at least one example from me and then I'll kind of throw it to you, Jason, which is I've, I've done, I've never done an ultra. So full disclosure there, but I have dabbled on the trail at shorter distances. I've done 25 K on the trail a couple times. I've done 30 K on the trail several times. And so while I've not done an ultra, I have, you know, done 15 to 18 miles in trail races and really, really enjoyed my time there. Most of the time for me, it was sort of an alternative to racing on the roads during the quote unquote off season for me where I wasn't in heavy training for a marathon, but was trying to stay fit, keep my miles up, but then do something fun to mix things up during that sort of down season. And I'll kind of take you back to my first trail race which was a 25K at the Rocky Raccoon in Houston, Sam Houston State Park. And I remember not really knowing what to expect and 
you know, showing up in the starting line as a trail newbie at a pretty flat but rudy course out there at Sam Houston State Park. And was it wet? It was not wet. Mm-hmm. This is that's a big difference. Yeah. That route is yeah, that yeah. course is different it was on dry, a wet day. It was dry and and you know a nice cool morning. I think it was in November. And anyway, so I didn't know what to expect, but I got going, and then immediately the juices started flowing. It's like oh, I'm I'm racing, you know. And on the trail, I didn't really know what to expect in terms of time, so I didn't really care. Wasn't looking at my watch. I was just following people. And on that day. You know, there was one guy who went out really fast and, and kind of dropped everybody. But then there was a pack of anywhere from six to eight that were kind of in and around each other. Or, you know, we could kind of see each other. And so, you know, that course has different sections where you're in this sort of Rudy single track. And then you jump out on a Jeep road and you can kind of open things up a little bit. Anyway, I got into the rhythm of it. At first, I was kind of in over my head. I'm like, oh, my gosh, like this seems so hard relative to what I normally do. Like my heart rate seemed to spike out of control versus the pace I thought I was going. But eventually I settled into a rhythm and started to kind of find it, find, you know, a rhythm on the trail. And, but I found myself, you know, relatively close to the front and about halfway through, I kind of looked around, looked around and I was right single file with third place, sorry, second place through fourth place. So there were three of us, second, third and fourth, or at least on the trail, you know, Uh, those competing for second, third, and fourth right together. And I was running at the back of that group just trying to hang on. And so we ended up in this situation for about, I don't know, five miles or so where we were playing this cat and mouse game. And one guy would kind of like stretch us out a little bit. And then the other two of us would latch back on. But we got into this like really pure racing mode that was just a lot of fun. And I was like not looking at my watch, not worried about my pace. I was just racing these other two guys. And eventually one guy made a definitive move and I wasn't able to, to counter that, but I was able to beat the other guy kind of near the end of the final mile and finished third myself that day, which I was happy about as a newbie. But also more than that, I was just exhilarated by this, the thrill of racing and the purity of it. And I know for some people it's not about racing when they're on the trail, but for me, and it wasn't even necessarily about racing that day that kind of intrigued me, but it was more about just the purity of the effort where it wasn't about pace. It wasn't about what my mile splits were. It wasn't about my watch at all. It was just about getting out there, chasing somebody and having a good time with it. And, uh, and I finished feeling like, all right, I want to do that again for sure. Uh, and I have not a ton of it, but I've done it here and there as a way to kind of just bring me back to the purity of racing and the purity of running. And so that for me is one reason why I do it is not only to take a break from the road, but also just to kind of tap into that purity of racing. But there are other reasons and you coach athletes that do this all the time, Jason. So what's, what's the other, what are the other reasons or cases for why somebody might dabble in the trail or convert to trail? Well, uh, part of it is a personal preference, I suppose. And, um, so a lot of it is like that for me. I, I like to be in nature. I like the solitude experience. I like an opportunity to disconnect from everyday society, the crush of work and life responsibilities and, and just get away from what I'm doing. Maybe spend a little bit of time in my head, process thoughts or think randomly, let my mind wander. And so that's a good part of it. I think that 
for a road runner, it can be a good opportunity for some cross training. The demands of running on the trail, uh, getting outside of one sustained movement or motion can bring a lot of benefits. Um, and it's, it's low impact relative to running on the road. So it can be a little bit of a reprieve from some of the abuse you take from a lot of road running and a lot of really hard running. It'll slow you down naturally. Um, so I think those would be the key points I would touch on. One thing too, I would mention, I, I talked about the competitive side, but you know, that was my experience, but also, you know, once you get to the finish line, you realize that there, a lot of trail, the trail culture is just about getting out there, experiencing nature, as you said, and enjoying each other, enjoying each other's company, having a beer afterwards, hanging out, watching people finish, cheering them on, but not necessarily worried about how you finish because time doesn't matter. So describe that kind of vibe at a race. Yeah, th that's one of my favorite things about the trail running community and the trail running culture. A lot, Even those of us that take it serious don't really take it that seriously. Like, I, I don't know, I've been known to put down a few beers the night before 50K and it's all good. Um, a lot of fun and and so we do you know all, trail runners will take care of each other on the trail so anytime um wherever out on the trail you see a runner in distress you always stop and offer help uh you're in often remote locations you're not it's not easily to access anybody and they're not just you know emergency responders standing by or anything so we're always helping each other looking out for each other offering aid and support uh, and then we do like to party at the end so um we love a finish line beer and some food and then some more beer and then probably some more food and beer and just keep going until <laughs> until the day's done. Um, so, you know, that's a that's definitely a fun part of it. I think that um, the culture is, is pretty relaxed. Um, there's not a lot of it's not a really intense culture. It's kind of kicked back. Uh, people like to take it easy. And then we're, we're going to run hard, but at the end of the day, it's really just about having some fun. Now, there's also an element, though, of challenging yourself, right? Because if you're going to run 50K, you're going to run 50 miles on a trail, which takes much longer than it would on a road. That's a lot of work. And so there's resilience involved. There's testing your limits in a different way involved. And some people are drawn to that. Steve, and I know you've coached athletes on the trail as well, especially for the ultra distance. So what part of that side of it do you see for people? Well, first of all, this topic is near and dear to my heart because I started running on the roads when I was like six or seven, but I started running on the trail when I was like eight or nine. And I've been single tracking. That's what I call it for my whole life. I'm wearing a hat right now that says dirtbag. That's pretty much what I am. I've been a trail runner my whole life, even though I ran on the track and on the roads successfully and at a pretty high level. Trail running has always been the purest form of the sport to me. Um, and so I think that the real thing about trail running that is so appealing um, is that I think a lot of it, f the attraction that I had for it to begin with is that I don't have to pay attention to the clock. So my pace per mile becomes irrelevant. And I think that's the f biggest argument that I have in a positive mode for many of our very competitive road runners who are listening to this podcast and our core listener group in our, of listeners is that you're never going to stop looking at your watch until you get on a course that makes you run a minute and a half slower per mile and you're running 75% harder 
than you expected. So okay. as hard as you can run, you'll still be a minute slower than your easy run pace. And that just makes you quit, right? Or better take it off and don't fucking worry about it and quit strobbing for a fucking little while. But anyway, I'll get, let me get off that soapbox before <laughs> I get onto it. I'm taking one step onto the box and stepping back mm-hmm. off of it. Um, but this is a way to um, truly disconnect from some of the more, uh, I don't know, ADHD, um, compulsive order type thinking that so many of us as roadrunners are in. Even if that's not our natural biochemical or neurochemical disposition, we quickly become trackers of each other and trackers of ourselves and measurers of our successes and failures based on the minute per mile that we're running or based on the course record that somebody has or some other thing that really honestly is fucking irrelevant and the trails make you get there right away like you cannot compare yourselves there is no apples to apples except that those same people running on that same course on that given day because two days later the same course could be a mud pit or it could be dry as a bone. Like I, you said, your experience at at Rocky Raccoon in Sam Houston State. That park is, you know, if you've ever been in that park when it's been raining, just it's a oh, minute per rough. mile slower. It's so rough. It sucks your shoes off. You can't run fast. You can't posit, You can't use proprioception. You can't stick your foot and expect it to stay where it's supposed to be. And so the experience of it is so different. So you have to chill out, relax. And stop thinking about pace. So that's the first thing that I think is so crucial and critical about trail running. The second thing is that you're now testing um, really what you're made of. And I think that's what trail running is so appealing to me is that um, I think the tertiary, the third thing that I think is so wonderful about it is that you get to chill and relax and enjoy nature and be in nature. But I'm kind of a type A person when it comes to running. and I can't really chill out and take it easy. So the trails actually make me tougher because I push harder and I wonder, I don't look at the watch to tell me whether or not I'm being successful in a workout. I'm wondering whether my lunch is about to come off, if I'm about to vomit or if it's, if I'm on the edge of what I can physically handle and, or I'll use you and I, you, the three of us were on a trail recently in Colorado, right? Um, bombing down a single track coming off of a, off of a trail. And we were, hammering really 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 hard and we were all distances apart and all i'm doing is trying to catch chris or trying to catch somebody else or trying to catch the fastest person there and so i'm pushing myself in a way that has nothing to do with time or any other characteristics so i'm kind of echoing the, th- the sed- sentiments that you made but you can either take it easy as jason's talking about and chill out and roll with that sort of chill laid-back culture that trail running has but trail running also has in it all the type a and all the competitive and all the cut your head off and shit down your throat capabilities they are just as present in trail running as they are on the roads but they're done in a way that says it's you versus you and then you versus the crew right instead of it you versus the crew and then you versus you and i really appreciate trail running for that reason and then the last one is really it's the closest we can get to what i think evolutionarily we are designed to do um there were not roads 100,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago, I mean 10,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago when our ancestors and our prehistoric ancestors were basically running down food or getting from place to place they were doing it barefoot or with rudimentary whatever they could put on their feet and they were moving through space 
getting aerobic development, building their fr- prefrontal cortex, and becoming what we are now humans through this, this sport, not through timing each other and racing each other around circles or over roads, but moving through space on a trail is what we were meant to do as a species. And in my opinion, it's how we are the human race. All right, I'll shut the fuck up. <laughs> I just well, went I wanna, over a lot I'll, of shit. I want to go right back at you with a question that I know a lot of roadrunners worry about when they're thinking about either dabbling or converting to trail is that they're worried about it making them slow. And so what would you say to that runner who's worried about a switch to trail or doing a season where they might do an ultra? What do you tell them about why or why it wouldn't make them slow? It will make you slower. If you decide to convert to trail running exclusively, you will get slower. Um, And I only recommend converting to trail running exclusively if you have no aspirations to being a fast marathon or half marathon or 10K or 5K runner. If you have zero aspirations to that, then moving to the trail exclusively may work for you. But you won't be able to come back in the way that you won't be able to come back the same way. It'll take you a lot longer to come back. So what I suggest to those folks is trail running, in my opinion, is the I've said I've espoused this on this podcast before. And I know Jason will agree with me. It is the best form of cross training that there is. It is the it is it will work. All of the different neural, it'll work all the different tendons and ligaments in your lower legs. It'll make you work across all three planes of your body. It will force you to lift your knees. It will force you to fire your glutes. It will force you to pay attention to what's going on in front of you. And so you gain so many wonderful things from running on the trail. You don't run in the same, the same biomechanical rut that you get into on the road, but you slow down. And so as long as you're continuing to do work, on the roads or do some or do work that is um balanced between trail running and road running then you don't necessarily have to get slower um jason and i have an ongoing i wouldn't say argument but at least an ongoing um point of discussion um about whether or not road race road road training is essential to success on the trails my argument is that it is. I'm not sure. I'll let Jason articulate his if he has one. But um, my argument is that it is essential because um, a fast road a, a fast road runner um, who can gain some of the skill sets that we're going to talk about about what makes trail tra- running so unique. If they do have some of those, they'll beat just the plain trail runner every single time. Case in point. Brian Morton this weekend, but <laughs> right. um, you know he's got some skills there. He does have some skills, <laughs> but he's also a two twenty five marathoner. Right. But a two twenty five marathoner could also be way slower than he is on the trail. So anyway, arg- make that argument for us about whether or not you think it is essential, or whether you think it's recommended, or if you're sort of experimenting with it and trying to determine or where you're at with it. Okay, so um, I guess w- the first thing would be to like unpack this concept of of slowing down right so there's am i going to get less fit or am i just going to get slower relative to what i'm doing on the road and so you're going to lose some you're going to lose turnover speed your cadence is going to slow down and you're not going to run as fast so you might not get a you're not going to have the same speed but i think that you still you can maintain the same level of aerobic fitness while you're running on the trail versus running on the road. You're just not going to be as fast as you were on the road. So yeah. you're going to get slower. Well, 
You are, but will your times in a 5K, a marathon, be slower if you run on the trail? Because that's the question you were asking me, right, Chris? Yeah, well, I mean, and we haven't done any sort of, like, systematic analysis oh, on <laughs> this. But, <laughs> now he's hemming but, like, on. <laughs> but, 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 but can you, but, but to answer the second question, which is, is it essential to, for right. a good trail runner to run on the roads? Is that essential? I, I don't think it's essential. I think that potentially you could get you could get better, but I mean, I can definitely outrun my marathon PR after a decade of focusing exclusively on the trail. And I've been experimenting with the blend between road and trail running, putting together sort of elements of ultra training and elements of advanced marathon training for the last f- four years, maybe, um, and. You know, I I did try to go back and run a marathon at Marine Corps two years ago, and I blew up. But there were a lot of reasons why that happened. I stuck to a, a race plan that wasn't appropriate. I tried to turn around too fast from a 125K mountain trail race into a marathon. Um, but I think that I've seen improvements in my road running and my trail running from running both of them, not focusing exclusively on one. Although... Uh, you know, I, I had a good run in the Bendera 100K last year, and I did almost all of that running on the trail. But I took the same types of workouts and ideas that we do in Team Rogue and applied those on the trail. And so I did a lot of quality work on the trail. And um, But I also came in and hit the track with the team and did some longer road runs and some of that work. And so I think that a lot of that helps. I mean, it, especially... It, there's a lot of like we could get really into the weeds on specificity and some of the things that might be applicable in one case or another. But uh, yes, I mean, I guess if you had if, if you had to pen me to an answer, I would say you're going to get slower if you're on the trail. <laughs> that doesn't mean you're going to be any less fit. Well, you answer the most important question, which is it is essential. And your argument is you don't believe it is. Um, and I and I maybe should back away from saying essential when you say specificity, because I although I. I had some hand in helping you craft that plan that you implemented at Bandera. Right. And we, knew, we, we both discussed how essential it was for you to do hard work on... We, your weekends were spent on the trail doing what you needed to do. But you spent your weekdays... What you, uh, you would try to get a one day a week on the trail, on the road with the Team Road Group right. to make sure that you... You, to keep you connected to other people and make sure that that's the other thing about getting in the woods is you can get into the woods yeah. and never and never really compare yourself to anybody else because you pretty much run solo. You can't run anybody off your wheel and you don't get that same experience frequently because people separate on trails really easily because of their ability to be able to manage trail running and the skill sets that everybody brings to bear right. because there's other pieces of, of this that, are, that, that we'll talk about in a bit. But um, yeah, I would I do. I guess I would say is. I still think a road, uh, any road runner that's going to go and dabble in trail running, which is what we're kind of discussing here in this initial podcast, is I would say stay on your road, keep your road skills not sharp, but keep them in play, and then fucking dive head deep onto the trails and enjoy it and do a wide variety of different things on the trail. But don't don't run, don't don't divorce yourself from whatever training group you're in that's consistently keeping you up to date and up to speed on on finding out where your current fitness is and also to keep you connected to what you might be coming back to um, and never getting too far away from the thing that you really want to do in the long term. 
And I would say the irreplaceable value add for getting on the road is getting with a group. I mean, being able to get in a training group where people will push you to run faster than you can, you just can't do it on your own. And it's even harder to try to get out and do it on the trail. And so for me, that was a big part of why I would come train with Team Rogus. I have these people that can push me, that can really help me figure out where I stand in my fitness on any given day or week or month. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing. I mean, I, I do know there's amazing, Austin has a couple of amazing trail running groups, just like Rogue is. But I don't think that's as important uh, for trail runners to have a group of people to run with on the trail as much as I think it's so critical on the roads. Although I just think the social aspect of any of any activity, and once you get on the trails and you're in a group of people on the trails, those are the best beers after. after <laughs> those are the those are the best moments. Those are the best conversations too. Like what was going on out there? Because the, there's so many more things that happen on the trail than happen on a road run. Anyway. One of the things we talked about in our What Does the Race Require series was the need to do running economy work year-round. And I think that's where this, the crux of this question comes into play, which is that in order to be your best on the trail, you need to stay economical, you need to stay efficient, and it's hard to do economy work on a trail. It's also hard to get the most out of that economy work on a trail. So... The little bits of even if it's, you know, 200s on a track or 400s on a track or strides on the road, you know, that's going to help you keep some of that economy work, which you can then translate into the trail, you know, by supplementing with that. So anyway, yeah, I would say to me, that's the crux of this question. Like you still need the economy work. You also you also need pure threshold. Right. You also need true tempo. You need four-mile tempo runs or 20-minute tempo runs. You need something to keep you in alignment with your base aerobic fitness because you're going to get a lot aerob- more aerobically fit on the trail because you're going to spend so much time. If you want to run 10 miles, if you're going to go mileage base and you're a 70-mile-per-week runner, guess what? You're going to be on the trail a lot longer to get 70 than you will be to get or 40 or 50 or whatever your number is. So, so Yeah, so let's use that as a segue into the next part of this discussion, which is, okay, how do our core training principles, which we've talked about on the road, how do they apply on the trail? Are they the same? Are they different? And and what modifications might you think about related to those? And so we're going to talk about three of those today, starting with that question of miles. One of our biggest principles, episode seven, we always talk about it, where we talked about miles matter. One of our biggest principles is that aerobic development, aerobic volume is extremely important regardless of the race you're running. 800 marathon ultra marathon and so you've got to put in the miles but on a trail those miles take longer than on the road so i'll take this question to you jason how do you think about this principle of miles matter on a trail and is it is it different is it time matters so you know what is what does it look like yeah you could call it time matters here if I look at it conceptually as volume and your volume should be appropriate for how you're, what you're training for, whatever your distance is. And so I prescribe anything for myself or for the athletes that I coach on a time basis. And um, so typically it's just a set, a set amount of time for most workouts and a combination of easy running and then uh, quality sessions. And then might do anything from just a strict time specification on weekend long runs to a percentage of your goal race time um, because 
race distances can vary so much for the ultra world. And so um, also athletes ability can differ a lot. So three hours for one athlete might be sufficient for a long run where uh, another athlete might need more time than that. And so we specify some percentage of their goal race time. So time. Time so based. So you do a time yep. base. And you still need a lots of volume. And are you, mm. are you, so the same idea matters, but it's just time matters and not miles matters. Right. Are, so how should somebody think about converting? So let's just say somebody's doing 50 miles per week on the road. How does that translate on the trail or does it, is it apples to apples? Do you, do you, you know, sometimes with my runners who are dabbling in trail, I'll say, hey, look, you know, use our long run schedule, but convert whatever time you think you would spend running 20 miles into minutes and seconds and then or hours, minutes and seconds, and then do that on the trail instead of 20 miles on the trail. Is it as simple as doing it that way or is there a different conversion that you use? Yeah. I, I mean, I can, I have a good feel for time translations with enough racing on the trail. So say uh, a trail marathon on a moderately difficult course in texas might take me three and a half hours um so that kind of gives me a sense of where an athlete around that ability level would run and then i can adjust a little um based on the the capabilities of a given athlete and then i just kind of learn what they're capable of doing over time uh so you know it's like say a 75 mile week for a pretty fit athlete, sort of an advanced level athlete, that's going to be about 15 my or 15 hours of time on trail um, for for a week, and um, that will vary week to week based on the kinds of terrain they're running. If it's a really hilly week, that's going to take a little bit more time to get to that level, um, and and then if they're running a lot of flatter trails, it would be less time to achieve that volume and i'm not specifying mile targets but i always kind of pay attention because it's easy to sort of make some translations when you're looking at the miles i covered and the amount of time that i spent getting there and would you cut that in half let's say somebody who's doing most of our listeners are probably not at the 75 mile a week right moment they're probably in that 40 45 50 mile per week range um would you say it's about half that that it's seven to eight or do you go to 10 because 10 to 12 probably right so it's not that much there's it's not exactly apples to apples so talk a little bit about why you why that math matters why that why that differential is there because it's not half of that yeah it's i guess what i typically i think that the higher volume runners are a, are a little more capable and so they're getting more work done in less time um, typically and then it's also going to vary depending on how much time that athlete is spending on the road versus the trail so a lot of trail runners even in our group here we see maybe spend only the saturday on the trail right and then the rest of their work they're doing um, on the road i mean even our our rogue trail group here is spending two days a week at least on the road with just with us and then one weekend on the trail and so i do have athletes that spend all their time on the trail and have no desire to get out on the road um, and then athletes that maybe only spend one day on the trail and then everything in between and so it's also kind of unique to all the athletes how much time they're going to spend and i and no matter how much time they're spending on the trail or the road i specify everything in a duration because um, i just borrowed this marine corps principle of train like you fight and so 
I just want them to get in the habit of these routines that matter on race day and kind of trying to keep things specific to that. I mean, that's so it's basically exactly what does your race require, right? I mean, that's a Correct. different way of saying of saying that. Um, one thing that is going to be really important here as we talk about volume and as we talk about this issue of miles matter or minutes matter as the case may be, right. right? Is talk just a little bit about, and Chris, you may have, this may also come up again, but I just want you to basically sort of open up this conversation about how it's different running on the trail when you're getting ready for race distances, let's say of a 50K or a 50 mile or a 100 mile, and talk a little bit about what we do a lot of, which is doubling, and what the importance of sort of back-to-backing or doubling or however people want to call it. There's different terminology that people have for it. But yeah. this concept of doing a run, doing two runs back-to-back that sort of mimic what you might be doing or starting to get you to get ready for what your race is going to require. So unpack that a little bit and talk a little bit about, number one, its importance, and number two, how you might do that for somebody who's getting ready for a, a 50K okay. on the trail. Yeah, this is something that will become more important the longer your goal race time or distance is. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of look at a 50K almost like marathon training, more or less, and then really start to differentiate around 50 miles and beyond. And so uh, it's a big ask to for somebody for just practical reasons to go out and run six hours in a day, say that's... 50% of their goal race time that they think they're going to hit. And so if you, the back-to-back long run can one give you the opportunity to kind of spend less time in one given day on your exercise. Um, so that, you know, if it's a six hour run, that's eight hours you're investing by the time you get somewhere, run, you get back, you maybe do some stretching, uh, take a shower or whatever. Um, and then logistically, you're also trying to support yourself for six hours. Like, how do you pull that off? Um, and, and so day two. Uh, you get, mean in terms of nutrition and correct. hydration water, and all those other pieces. Yeah, water, yeah. food, right. Uh, social capital. If I'm asking people to come out and like meet me in different locations and drop stuff, whatever it is. Um, and so, uh, so then part of the training element of it is I run day one. I get pretty tired. I come out day two, I'm on tired legs, so I get just a little bit more out of that second long run. So it might be back-to-back three-hour long runs on Saturday and Sunday on the trail in difficult terrain. And uh, so I just want to wear myself out day one and then get back out and try to replicate that on day two. It's going to be harder, but I'm pushing myself to get that little bit more adaptation than I can out of that. So I want to talk about, and you said a 50K is kind of like marathon training, so I think... That's a good way to relate it to people that might be roadrunners to say, look, if you're training for a 50K, you need to do similar volume in minutes that you're training for a marathon at. But I do think there's some perhaps misperception that if you go up to a 50 mile race, that there's so much more that you have to do to be able to cover 50 miles. And so talk a little bit about that, about how it's really not as crazy as you might think. Yeah. But what are the differences if you're scaling up to a 50 mile? What does that look like? Well, first, I want to say a well-run marathon is harder than a well-run 50K. There's just no way around it. I yeah. mean, it, it, it's you will unless you just have done no trail running. Right. I mean, you just have to run so much slower on the trail that you won't have that same on the edge experience that happens with 26.2 miles 
the, there's not the same wall. There's actually no wall in the same way unless you don't take any nutrition in. And so I think it's important for our listeners just to know that I think Jason would agree with me that it's much harder to run a really well-crafted and well-produced marathon. So anybody today who wants to do a little – get into trail running – you can run a, if you can run a marathon, you can run a marathon well, you can immediately translate that into trail running if you do, what, a month or six weeks of trail running. Right. You probably can bump right into it. But to Chris's point, talk a little bit about what the fuck happens when you decide to run 50 fucking miles. Yeah. Because yeah. it's a whole different ball of wax, which so, is what your question is, right? <laughs> so I'll lead into this with like a, kind of a broader discussion about some of the differences between trail and road running, right? So I get a lot of questions about like, how do I set goals in trail running? And this comes a lot from people that have been marathoning for a while, athletes that have been marathoning for a while. And, you know, you're not talking about, like we don't tout 50K PRs or 50 mile PRs. And it's really hard to say like, well, I want to set a time goal for this race, which you can do if you know enough about the race. Like it's a local one, it's in your backyard. Maybe you've run it a couple of times. Then you can start to talk about dialing in your performance on that. But, you know, it, trail racing, it can be anything from a flat run in the Houston area like Rocky Raccoon, or it could be hard rock where in the course of 100 miles, you climb the same elevation as Mount Everest, right? I mean, you're talking races with 30,000 feet of elevation gain in them with time above 12, 13, 14,000 feet. And so the, those, that suddenly you're, you're talking about, I don't know what you would even be comparing at that point, like pomegranates and watermelons or something. <laughs> it's not apples to apples. Right. And so, so, um, so, so then let's dive into this point about like, what would it require to get from a 50 K to a 50 miler? You know, it is, um, you don't have to try to sort of like double the work or if you're going from 50K training to 100K training, it's not like, well, I have to do twice as much work. I have to do twice as much volume or spend that much more time out. You will hit a point of diminishing returns or you'll simply hit the limits of your capability, whether that constraint is your body's ability to handle the volume or just the time you have in life to get out and run. And so, um, you know, I think that you might you could be a marathoner running 100 miles a week and if, and you wouldn't need to run any more of that to go to 50 miles or even to 100 miles and um so i think that it really gets down to what what you can handle whatever that volume is that you can run in a week is really going to be the volume that you run and uh the key will be getting used to longer runs and so i would um typically what i do is encourage athletes if they're training for say a 50 milers get out and run some 50 k's like you do need to do some long runs but we try to really incorporate like b races get out do some of those longer runs um but it's hard to ask somebody like well you need to go run eight hours this saturday i mean it's not practical for a lot of reasons it's a big demand uh, long runs take a lot out of you. And so it's not something that we really try to do a whole, it, it, we don't just go out and say, well, if you want to run 50 miles, like you got to get used to running eight to 10 miles on the week or 10 hours on the weekend. It just doesn't make really any sense. And I don't think you're just going to start to see that point of diminishing returns. We're like, I'm, I'm doing so much work. My body can't handle it. My body can't recover. My body can't keep up. And so it really just, the differentiator, I think, is 
as an individual human, can you handle the stress of 50 miles, 100K, 100 miles? And not all of us can. Not all of us have the mental fortitude or the physical fortitude to do it. And so those that continue to run in that discipline are the ones that can handle it. But you're not necessarily taking your long runs if they're at three and a half hours training for 50K. You're not taking it to a six-hour long run for, for 50 mile. Right. What you're doing is typically maybe adding a little incremental time on the long run, but more than that, doing some back to backs, as you said, where you're doing longer sessions on over two days and then throwing in some prep races, so to speak, where you might do a 50K or two in advance of a 50 miler to get used to that time out there. If you can't do the one run on your own. Right. So if you've got a great support group where you've got a good group of people to train with. You don't need those races, but what we found is frequently people can't. Either they don't have support, and I think that's what Jason was saying, the social capital of getting other people to help you get out and do the work that you need to do, finding other people that will be willing to do that, people who might be willing to run 10 miles with you here, 10 miles with you there, 10 miles with you there. Those are hard things to find. 30 miles on a road is, I mean, on the trail is a long time to be out there, so those races give you that. But if you can do a 30-miler on the trail by yourself, yeah. You, you, that's the way to do it. That is the way. I ask athletes to get out for six hours. Yes. And, and, and <laughs> the first time I ever ask it, sometimes they're like, yeah, you're fucking mine. Like, how, <laughs> how am I even going to do that? You know what I'm like? Well, uh, you know, that's, uh, well, let's talk about it. I'll see you. I'll see you after mile 10. We'll do a 10 mile loop and I'll see you after mile 10. And I'll get you through the second 10 miles and then you're on your own for the third 10 miles. And that's the dark night of the soul right yeah. there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So point one, not, it's not miles matter. Minutes matter. And we talked a little bit about that. Second principle we wanted to talk about here is this idea of in, in road running where we talk about running by feel and how while paces matter at some level, what we're really trying to do is get you to a certain effort level in order to achieve the physiological benefit that we're targeting on a given day. And in trail racing, paces, as we've already talked about, are irrelevant and can vary significantly depending on your terrain. So you can't really use a Garmin pace per mile as a proxy for effort in any circumstance and so what does that mean on the trail how do you translate it so this gets at one of our training principles which is zone-based training and so uh, i i, I, I kind of consider three zone-based training metrics we have heart rate we have pace which is what we typically use with our road groups and then effort and so um i borrow liberally from jason coop who wrote a book training essentials for ultra running and he lays out, what I think is a nice framework for just looking at effort-based training or rating of perceived exertion. And there's a lot of literature out on this. A lot of people have put out different frameworks and for me, it doesn't matter. I, the important thing is to get one and use that and create a common vernacular that the athletes and the coaches can understand. And it's a way they can communicate. And so, uh, we use a 10 point scale and, um, the reason why we go off of effort is that you can't, if I were to tell you to go out and run a six minute pace as your tempo effort for four miles uh, on any given trail, it's going to be hard to do that because, and, and that like assumes that I know something about the trail, but athletes could be anywhere in the U.S. running on any trail uh, in their neighborhood or whatever. And so you hit terrain and suddenly you're uphill and it's really hard to maintain that pace, but then you're going downhill and you can bomb right past that pace. And then you hit like some flat terrain for a while, or you get into the woods and you're twisting and turning and it's hard to get into that rhythm. And so 
uh, or you get onto really technical terrain. And when you get on technical terrain, it's better to move fast so you get some flow and it's a little bit easier to balance and navigate that terrain. And so um, that's why we use effort. Effort gives you a gauge that can you can be consistent with despite what your speed is. So if I'm slowing down going up a hill, I can still put out the same effort. My heart rate might be higher, my pace might be slower, but I can get a feel for that effort and push that effort throughout the course of it. So you're using a one to 10 scale. Give us some sense for what that means. You know, like what's a two, what's a five, what's a seven? Yeah, so it's funny that we use a 10 point scale because it really kind of starts at five. Um, And so... Uh, it's at least consistent with all 10-point scales that right. anybody in the world has. <laughs> if you have a beating heart, you're at four. Yeah. Right? If you're running on a trail, you're at five now. Right? Right. And one through three, you're dead. So <laughs> exactly. <I guess>. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, we, we have an endurance effort, uh, well, really a, like a recovery effort. So that's, that's kind of the bottom of the scale, and that's around like a four on a 10-point scale. And then your endurance effort is somewhere around a five, six. Um, and then get into uh, like a steady state effort, which might be around like a marathon goal pace a little bit faster. And that's a seven. And then tempo work, we'll do it in eight or nine. And then VO2 max work, like high end intervals, that'd be a 10. Um, yeah. yeah. Talk a little bit about how that gets adjusted for uphill or downhill. Um, because now you're, because you just gave a general pace range but talk to the people a little bit, and, and you won't be able to cover all the nuances with it. But generally, as soon as you hit an eleva- you know, a, a climb of three percent, five percent, in some cases on trails, as we hit, we hit eight to ten percent. All of a sudden, the pace. That's why this. Talk a little bit about why that's so important with effort. Yes. So it is. It's important in those circumstances to moderate your effort, and not let yourself. So say I have an athlete doing um, two blocks of, say, 30 minutes of steady effort while they're out on a long run for the weekend. When they hit hilly terrain, it's important to make sure that they're conscious of dialing back their effort so that it doesn't creep into, like, a tempo. And so so suddenly now you're getting uh, into some sort of, like, anaerobic phase for, say, four or five minutes as you climb a hill and then you're coming back down and and then maybe recovering because you invested too much in getting up the hill and so now you start to get wonky on your effort and really consistency is important and so you know we just give notes and cues um for the athletes and just make sure that in steady efforts are not creeping into the tempo level of effort when we're doing tempo runs not creeping into a vo2 max level of effort so you're you're basically you're it's important nuance here what you're saying is even if you're going uphill, you need to then adjust. You Correct. need to go – if you have a 7 – if you were coaching an athlete and they hit a 4% grade, they would need to walk. Or, or let's say, say a 7 to 8% grade. In order to stay in that 70% range and not go above it or seven that set 7 to 8 range, they would need to walk because they're not going to – because otherwise they're going to go into 9 to 10 because as soon as you get on a hill of that magnitude with uneven terrain and going uphill – you're going to go to eight. You're going to go nine and ten almost. Period. Right. right. We did that yesterday. You right. and I went up a hill right. at the end of a run, and we were like, "Bam!" Right? right. So you just so you what your statement is in order to stay in the range that you need to, you have to fucking walk. Right. That's and going to be very different for our for our listeners, right, Chris? They're not going to necessarily. Yeah. yeah. That's a that's a that's a that's a different. That's a fundamental shift in training, and it's one of the things that's really important about trail running and, and crucial in a roadrunner translating to the trail and something they need to learn because it is it is the it is the goose that gets cooked 
for road runners when they hit it every time. Yeah. Trail runners watch road runners come out and they go, watch them on this hill. <laughs> I'll eat them for lunch on the downhill and they'll never be able to recover. Yeah, and we, we try to make walking sound sexy in trail running by calling it power hiking, uh, but it's walking. I mean, we'll just be honest with ourselves. And oftentimes, in reality, it's you're going to be putting about the same level of effort. Um, well, trying to run up hills at times is more taxing than just walking, and you'll and you'll be at the same speed. You can pretty much walk. I mean, you know, some. You, some runners will have a harder time running up the hill of life than they will walking and and which is a local trail we have here in austin it's a four tenths of a mile nice grade and people love to just run it on repeat but um yeah i mean the, the consistency and the effort is important and so you you walk uphill you don't run too fast downhill um but then i also uh love to prescribe vo2 max intervals on a hill and and then the athletes are running up and down the hills wherever they are uh, doing their intervals there. And it, and it just is, it's a little bit less stressful on the body. You get the same kind of aerobic work and you work on some of that skill of getting efficient, moving up a hill and finding your line. It's really important so that you're not trying to just like jump ledges or something, but how do I make this efficient? How do I work my way up? Plus it's easy on a hill to get somebody into nine or 10, right? Yeah. So I often wish as a coach, for road athletes primarily that we could use a one to 10 scale instead of paces because really that's what we're trying to get them to. Right. But it's, it's easy in our world of geeko meters to give them pace. But, but how do you teach that? You know, I know you've talked to me in the past about having to basically train athletes to think about effort in a one to 10 scale versus using their watch. So how do you teach that? How long does it typically take? What are the cues you give somebody? So uh, breathing rate and conversational cues are what we typically use. Um, and it, it can be difficult to kind of get a sense for that, especially for athletes that aren't really good at differentiating speed. Um, they have, you know, they, they just haven't really done a lot of work where they can differentiate. So like some, uh, anyway, so... Um, so we use breathing cues, we use conversation cues. So if you're at a tempo effort, well, let's say you're at a recovery effort, like you could just talk about how your whole weekend went or whatever. And then if you're at an endurance run effort or an easy effort, like, you know, we'll talk about how Rogue Expeditions trips were or whatever, right? We can have a whole conversation. Uh, you get into a steady effort and it's a little bit less, like you can, you can get a few sentences out before you need to focus on breathing again. You get into a tempo effort and it's maybe like one or two sentences before you need to focus on breathing again. Then you get into that like PE 10 range VO2 max intervals. It might be like two, three words, usually some sort of like expletive. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and so, um, that's that's kind of it. And then I think that after a while for the more advanced athletes, I talked to him a little bit about like, what are you feeling? You know, there are times when you're really pushing your lactate threshold and you can start to feel how your body's reacting to that. And, and you can feel your legs get a little tingly or for me, sometimes my hands get a little tingly when I'm up around that like nine ten range. And so I know that I'm like on the cusp of something and that's kind of about where I start to dial back and it takes time. I mean, it takes two, three training cycles before athletes really get a sense for what it means to run by effort. Um, it can be easier with, with athletes that are experienced say in 
marathon training contacts and they've had some time to get well trained, it can be a little bit easier to translate some of the road training principles that we use or pace zones into effort zones. And so it depends on the athlete a lot too, what their experience is in training. My experience is if an athlete on the road is dialed into their effort based training, that they can translate that to the trail immediately. And then they are so far ahead of they're far ahead of many trail runners at that point because effort-based running is, is the absolute crux of successful trail running and at least competitive successful trail running because getting to the finish line is the first and most important right. objective in any trail race. I like to tell people that run trail racing, the moment you register for that race, there's no DNFs. Like, do not fucking DNF. They need to yank you off the course. Because once you get an athlete that's DNFing in races on the trail, they are missing the entire point, which is disrespecting every single other person that's out there on the route. Whereas when you're running on the roads, I don't look at it that way. People have key objectives that they want to reach. And if they decide they to step off the course on a road race, I, I'll look askance at them. I'm a bit of an asshole. But um, on the road, on the trail, if somebody walks off the course, nah, you better be, they better fucking have you in a fucking stretcher and you better be going to the hospital. There should no good reason to drop out of a trail race ever. Don't fucking sign up if you're not going to finish because that's the badge of honor. That's the cur That's the thing that we're looking for, and that's the most important objective, like yeah. to get to the finish line, which is so much different from road racing. So and much different. So effort is also a big part of the race specificity or what the race requires. So and this kind of gets to your your intro story about running Rocky Raccoon, Chris, which is that on any given day when you show up, you're let's say your race goal is to make the podium. You don't know on that day <laughs> what that finishing time is. Right. There's no way you can know. And so you're out there racing the other racers and everything you're doing that day is relative to the other people on the race course. And so I got to think like, okay, I'm just marking the person in front of me and I'm making sure, can I hold on to second place? Can I hold on to third place? Will I be able to make a move in the end? And, and if you, if you, don't understand your effort well you may invest way too much early on racing somebody and then you blow up or they blow up and you invested too much early on and then you blow up later and you mm -hmm. get fast and right. so you gotta um, yeah, you gotta know if you can sustain what you're doing and you don't want to you don't want to try to figure race. that out on race day right <laughs> no effort. doubt about that okay so effort-based running by feel zone-based training as you talked about it that's the second principle that people need to understand zones not paces third thing we wanted to talk about is sort of this idea that we've talked about in the past which is that every day has a purpose within a week and then within a training cycle you might have different periods in terms of what you're working on at various periods as you gear up to to a peak race to what extent is that conceptually different for trail so this really gets down to that there's one piece of this that's specific to trail and then one that's more specific to athletes and, and sort of and is somewhat unique to the trail running community a lot of athletes that have gotten into trail running um they tip typically trail runners haven't spent a lot of time systematically training um so they they maybe didn't have a lot of experience running growing up so they didn't run track in high school or college or anything like that they were never part of a road training group say like we might have here at rogue 
And so typically what they do is they just run a lot. They just go out and they run um, and maybe they run fast a lot or maybe they just run slow a lot. And so I like to uh, focus first on high end aerobic capacity. Um, so do a, do a lot more of the VO2 max work early on in a training cycle and then get into threshold training in the middle of a training cycle. And, and I like to put pieces of both of those uh, in each period. So do some like start maybe with a progression run early on, which blends a little bit of both of that. And then, and then work through a, a sort of like a lead up of uh fartlek work to some track sessions to work on economy. Um, and then really focus on a lot of tempo work. And I typically just do like intervals, long intervals, like get out and do two times 20 minutes at a tempo effort or something like that. And then the third block, which I think is specific to trail running, is that it's a big focus on volume and race specificity. And so kind of get away from a lot of the quality work, spend more time in like steady effort um, sessions and focusing on volume and really building. That's when you get into these like six hour runs or back to back trail runs, because that volume, the long runs, the concentration of long runs takes a lot out of you. It takes a lot to recover from those sessions. And so I like to focus a lot of the energy there and then putting race specificity into it. So that's the time when you start running trail routes that mimic as much as possible as the course you're going to get on. So if it's a technical course, you're out on technical trail, which is more demanding. If it's a hilly course, you're out on hilly trails. That's more demanding. If it's technical and hilly, you're doing both of that. And try to um, try to get as much elevation gain in as is relative to whatever that race is. Um, it can be really hard if you're in a place like Austin to prepare for, say, a race in Colorado. Um, and so if you can get an athlete out to Colorado through that period, that would be the time for, like, mountain training camps, high elevation training camps. Um, so you just try to do as much as you can to get really specific about that race you're going to run. So in some ways it's not that different from how we would structure a road training block. It's just that, and I want you to comment on this, Steve, it's just when you get into that race specific period for us, for a marathon, it's a lot about race specific marathon pace and getting them dialed into that. Obviously they have to cover a certain distance, but what I'm hearing from you with the trail is that it's more about getting the volume, the, the kind of race specific specific time on your feet that you're going to need to cover and then dealing with the race specific terrain you're going to face right. in that final period. Yeah, is I that think, a fair? I, yeah, I think, I think what Jason is describing is very similar to what we do with one key difference. And that's the people that are showing up are, are they're anaerobic, they're, they're anaerobic babies. Um, they're aerobic babies, but you can't do much about that. That's right. The sport will take you there. What he's doing, which is really counterintuitive to what many trail runners are probably doing, and many people who are listening to this who are already trail runners are probably like, whoa, I never thought of that, is you've got to go do fast, short repetitions, either of hills or flat, short technical trails or no technical trail on a smooth even, but you have to get... You're, what Jason's saying is you have to set your effort scale appropriately. And many trail runners don't ever do that. And uh, so it, it mimics conceptually what we do, right, with road runners. 
but the physical process of that is probably more rigorous initially for many trail runners and anybody that and if if it's not hard for a trail runner at some point in time then there's a problem you need especially early on right you need to redline whatever that is for you and get into that eight nine ten range frequently early on in a training cycle to get a set point that will allow you to be successful later on because let's not lie it's hard yeah trail running is hard <laughs> and there tends to be a perception that i need to run all this volume but it's no you need, you need to work all of your aerobic systems and so I have a lot of athletes that struggle with early on, you know, I have them, they're training for a 50 miler, but they might only be running 40 or 50 miles a week. And they're spending a lot of time in high intensity work. And then later on we go and focus on that volume. And but that, but that race specific period, it's less about pace, more about the course, the distance and the terrain you're going to be dealing with. Right. I, I, there is, why don't you talk about this too? I mean, there, once you go 50 miles and beyond, there's another piece of this puzzle, which is our favorite topic on this podcast, which is mental training. Talk a little bit about what those, you and I had a, Jason and I had a fantastic serendipitous run yesterday. We ended up at the same trailhead at the exact same moment. What are the fucking chances of that? <laughs> and then we got a downpour as we were out there. It was, it was awesome. We got a yeah. great run. Um, but we talked a little bit about how a big, one of the huge BHAGs that you and I have both discussed over many years um, about how little the preparation for that race, the actual feet put one foot put in front of the other is important and how important what that race is going to require, what psychologically is going on. Talk a little bit about those who are thinking about running 50 miles, 100 Ks, 100 milers. What are you doing from a mental training perspective that is essential and where does that fit in that periodization mo model that we're talking about? So uh, that's a great question. Um, and there's a lot to m the mental preparation side of ultra running, especially the, f the longer you're going to run, the more difficult it gets. But, you know, if you're out for uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 hours, you have a lot more opportunity to get into a bad space, uh, maybe multiple opportunities for low points, a few opportunities for high points. And so you're going to get this emotional roller coaster going that you might not experience in a three or four hour marathon. Um, and so it's really important to understand why you're doing this. Why are, why am I out here running? Why am I putting myself through this ringer? And then to make sure the athlete is equipped with the tools they need to get through the low points um, and to not and to not uh, overinvest in the high moments. Right. And so um, I um, with athletes, I like to get to know them a little bit before I get into the mental training stuff with them. But um, it's usually something like a month or so into a training cycle let's assume they come to us at the start of you know that whatever their goal period of training is and um and, and do the same thing you know it's a, a statement of purpose it's a vision of yourself as a runner um it's it's uh starting to work through tools visualizing your race thinking about negative self-talk um and so you know that that gets you for like maybe that 50 mile to 100k distance if you can do it under 12 hours you know then you got to get into this whole new game of like well what if i'm running through the night what about a 24-hour race like how am i going to deal with sleep deprivation 
how, <laughs> yeah, like how am I going to keep myself from just walking off of the course when I get into a point where I'm like, I've been walking for the last three hours and not even running anymore. Oh, this is terrible. And, and so it's not much different than what we would do for a marathon runner. I mean, I, I kind of run the same mental training framework game that you guys have laid out here in the podcast with these athletes. Um, and I just make sure that I think it's as important as any other context, but it's it's probably less prevalent in the trail running world, um, and 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 so it's not something that I've seen a lot of coaches or people writing about the subject, writing about ultra running, talk about, and I haven't heard a lot of um, elite level ultra runners talk about that. Um, you know, and I would say that it's as important that there are other things. There's like so much of your strategy goes into never getting into that spot in the first place. There's a lot that can contribute over that period of time, nutrition, hydration, and other things. And so, um, and that's kind of forecasting some conversations to come. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, tra- I mean, how do you train? I mean, as my, ob- as my observation of the trail world goes, those that are doing 50 miles plus, especially the hundred miles is you get a lot of people that go to that distance that just like to suffer, you know, that they sort of are made, they're humans made for resilience and they like to beat themselves. They like to flog themselves, you know, (laughs) for hours upon hours at end. It's sort of just in their makeup to challenge themselves that way. And so when shit hits the fan and a hundred miler, you know, yeah, it's hard, but they're sort of wired to deal with it. It's what they asked for. Yeah, they know they, they asked yeah, for it. Yeah, they right? know they asked for it. They're kind of Thank you, may that. I have another. Thank so, you, may I have right, another. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like they're punishing themselves for something, right? Flagellants. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> you know, have you had experience with athletes who maybe weren't wired that way that could, that figured out how to operate that way? Uh, no, I guess is a short answer. Um, you know, I think, so one thing is, I mean, I lived this experience. I imagine that a lot of athletes do. You can kind of like just step out and be like, I'm going to try my first marathon. It's not something I've really worked up to or anything. Um, And I'm going to go out. I'm going to see how it goes. And maybe it goes really well. Maybe it's really shitty. But you don't typically just like decide I'm going to go out and run 50 miles. I've not really had any trail running experience or much running experience. And it sounds like fun to go run 100 miles even, right? Um, And so you have typically, if you're running that type of ultra marathon, you've spent quite a bit of time building up to it. And you know before you get there what you're getting yourself into. I think that anybody, myself included, 10 years ago, uh, would be intimidated by the idea of running 50 miles. Now, um, I'm sure there are the rare few that are like, oh, I'm just going to go for it. Uh, you know, I, I've, the one story I've heard of somebody just deciding on a whim they're going to run 100 miles, the dude was a former Navy SEAL, right? And also, like, broke his feet <laughs> in the process. So, so <laughs> you know, I think that it's unique in that sense that you really, like, you have some experience, you have your feet under you, and you have a good sense of what you're doing before you get into it. So I've had a little bit of an experience um, with athletes who I knew going into a 100-miler were not psychologically prepared for what was going to happen to them um, and what was going to occur. Not the specifics because no one could have predicted it. It's the specifics are, you know, in, in, in that experience. But I remember telling um, one of these people that I'm thinking of in particular was successful. 
um, because this will go back to our one of our core principles of purpose. They knew what they knew what they wanted out of that, and they were clear that finishing was their goal. And they walked in with a time goal, which I tried to talk them out of multiple times, but they refused to be talked out of. Um, and so, uh, but luckily they were very clear that they're, you know, but they probably, and this athlete was probably their third goal, their plan C, right, was finish. Um, and that's what got them through. And, and I think for most trail runners, or most ultra runners, that's, that, that's got to be the thing. Um, and the one that wasn't successful, uh, it, this, the, you know, the, it, it would, and it, and it, and the fail came from a psychological perspective. Um, it was that they didn't have a clear purpose and they didn't understand the, uh, finding that finish line, uh, became less and less important. And I would suggest to anyone that's going to run a distance of 50 miles or beyond, um, that they adopt that attitude of no fucking quit. And it, it, you shouldn't, anybody, any, I think nearly anyone can go out and experience 50K and below and have a great experience, even if it's a terrible experience. But no one's going to run 50 miles and think it was a time well spent if they get to 35 miles and they can't fucking function and they have to get pulled off the route. And so it, it really is about finding this, reason to do it needs to be finding the finish line this is what makes trail running um so different and special in my mind and what makes this is what i don't understand why there aren't more people who love to run half marathons who aren't just running to the trails because the trail is the place where um they get a double win they get the win of 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 being out and moving through space and experiencing nat and experiencing nature and doing all these things on a single track trail and which is so much about and a community element that that's a huge piece of it but they also get this really big special win of getting across a finish line where that where that matters so much and once a runner who runs a half marathon does it two three four times what's the what is it and when you go to the trails each of these courses is so unique and so individual and so different we've got what do we have of the half marathon variety and beyond in in the central texas area we have dozens nearly at least every other weekend there's a trail race that you can jump into that will challenge the shit out of you of varying race distances that is unique and special in its own regard and it's like if you haven't trail run before and you're looking for that thing to get you out of your road rut this is a great way to do it and it will reframe your entire running experience, in my opinion, and it will reframe, and and it will definitely help you begin to determine what purpose really is in running. But the part of the reason they don't, which is the perfect segue into our final section for this podcast, is because it's intimidating, and because there are trail-specific elements and skills that are very foreign to road racers, and. You know, somebody who's looking at the road thinking, man, I don't even have the right shoes for this. I don't, you know, I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I'm afraid of tripping and falling and breaking something, whatever. The, I think there is an intimidation factor that relates specifically to some of the trail specific skill sets that you need to be successful on a trail and certainly to finish a trail race. So let's talk about that now. We're going to use a big word here to open it because so much of being on the trail is being able to manage the terrain and the technical nature of it, however that may play out. Proprioception and your ability to kind of feel the ground and deal with your footwork 
is so critical. I, for one, am not very good at it. <laughs> and part of that's because I've spent so much time on the roads. Roads is obviously a very two-dimensional activity. And once you get on the trail, it's 3D. And especially if you're on a technical trail, it's super 3D. Talk, Steve, about what is proprioception, first of all, and what that means for your ability to run trail. So I don't know what Webster's Dictionary's definition of proprioception is, but in real time and space on a trail, proprioception is the eye's ability to pick up cues from the terrain that you're on. And a low level of proprioception means that you're relying on the eyes and thinking that the eyes have to look at every single thing that's in your way on a trail, like every rock, every gully, every dip, every lift. Um, a high level of proprioception or quality proprioception is where the point where your eyes do all the work and you don't even have to think about it. So proprioception is basically moving from seeing every single thing as an independent, unique object to be overcome to moving to a space where you have no need to actually look, you you can look and see and not have to think through each of those little pieces. So you become, in a metaphysical way or a mystical way, you become one with the trail and you don't actually have to see every nook and cranny and every lift and drop. I'll give an example. Hopefully she won't get too mad at me, but I mean, I think everybody on this podcast or people who have listened to this podcast know who Allison Maxis is. She's the leader of our um, Rogue Expedition tours. She's been on this podcast many times. She's... Um, an incredibly good road runner and she's also an incredibly I think an even more talented trail runner but her proprioception skills when she first started trail running were so low she she was trying to see every single rock and every single gully and every single lift as, as something she had to lift her foot over and so she was over taxing her eyeballs and over taxing her brain what happens when that when that occurs is then you tighten up and you become less fluid, less flexible. Your ankles all of a sudden have to, they start to react, they start to act in a way that you have to counterbalance every little, every single thing that happens to them. And so she was fighting it. And I remember the first while, while she first started getting into trail running, she would just be completely neuromuscularly, psychologically cooked and fried. Um, but she loved to run on the trails, and so she figured it out. And proprioception gets better and better and better the more you do it. She ran on the trails for two, three, four years, gained so much better skill set, and then she, but she would just suck at proprioception on downhills. And um, to the point that nearly anybody could fly past this incredibly fast trail runner. I, I mean, I think grandmothers could probably run faster down a trail in some cases than, than, than Allison could. And it was... I remember her talking about how how much fr how frustrating it was for her in you know she got to the point basically where she decided that the things that she wanted mattered way more and the one things that she wanted on a trail and the things that she needed on a trail mattered more than what she was worried about because pro a lack of proprioception typically is a fears factor or a fear level that's disproportionate to what the actual risk that is out there um, and she so she started wanting things a lot worse and all of a sudden her proprioception got better so proprioception has two ways of working on number one getting out and doing the trails that's crucial and critical you have to learn it's a learned skill but we are 
evolutionarily designed for this. We will learn proprioception very quickly. People who are good with proprioception will get it, who are on a high level, who have high talent in this area. I think they can get proprioception in three weeks, four weeks, six weeks most. Um, there are low, those, are, those who are low on the proprioception quotient, um, they'll take them longer. It took Allison much, much longer. But you get to a point where proprioception occurs and, and it's there, the skill set's there. The problem is then fear factor comes into play. And so much of proprioception is what's going on between the ears and not what's happening in the eyes to the, and that information going to the rest of the body. And so there's twofold argument, there's twofold piece of what proprioception is. It's the natural skill set of getting, learning how to run on uneven terrain. And then number two, getting over the risk. Because so many people think that the risk is, gr is so much greater than it really, really is. And they, they make, and then because their fear is so great, any little problem becomes magnified to a factor of 10 or 12 or 20 or 100. And once they get there, it's really hard to back them off. And I, that experience, I think, I think um, Allison had a few experiences that scared the living shit out of her to the point where it, it took her much longer to get over it. She got this proprioception skills down, but then the fear factor came into play. And once she got over the fear, because the things that she wanted lowered the risk, she just went for it. And um, so anyway, that's a really long answer <laughs> for what proprioception to use, is. To use dictionary.com's answer they say the unconscious perception of movement and spatial orientation arising from stimuli within the body itself it's flow right essentially your ability to flow with the terrain i kind of for me i think about it in the context of skiing you know when i first started snow skiing i didn't start until high school so i was later to the game it didn't come as naturally to me when i started learning and it took in my first trip skiing pretty much the full four or five days we were there like the final few runs because there was a combination of both not being able to kind of read the terrain and adjust my body accordingly but also fear as you said of somehow falling or hitting something or doing whatever until finally all of that kind of let go and then something just clicked where it was just kind of flowy movement and then i i got it, it was almost like riding a bike of like that that ability to suddenly just move the pedals and not have to worry about balancing yourself anymore right you just kind of flow on a bike yeah, that that definite that absolutely absolutely true. But that definition doesn't have fear in it. So I do no, think no, I know, I know, I know. I do think right. it it is it does require both pieces. So in, in my opinion, both those trail, two are crucial. For me on the trail, a big issue for me is the fear factor. And when I'm chasing somebody, I can kind of not think about that, and then it changes my ability to flow on the trail. But but the point is, ultimately, this is a skill that can be developed and learned, and you have to spend time working on your ability to flow over terrain, especially terrain that would be similar to what you're going to run in on your race. Right, Jason? Right. So in a trail group context, how do you help people develop this skill? So um, in our last training cycle, we actually did some workshops on this where we got out to the trail and went through sort of examples of this. Uh, and we would do some downhill running, some uphill running, just kind of like talk about some general concepts about terrain navigation, how you spot things out. And then um, I actually took all the athletes down to a spot on the trail where I had them jump from rock to rock as they cross a creek getting up to a dam. And I like, I like your bike analogy because I use a spinning coin analogy, right, of this concept of flow. And there's a counterintuitive part of this, which is that 
the faster you move through technical terrain, the easier it is to move through that terrain. And you're avoiding more obstacles by covering more ground at any given period of time. But you're also, uh, you're not planting yourself as much on any given obstacle, a rock, a root, whatever it is. And so when you spin a coin, or like if you just set a coin on the table, it's going to fall over. Um, and when you spin it at first, it's moving really fast. It has a nice balance to it. It stays up. It's almost like it's perfectly on its side spinning. And then the slower that momentum gets, the harder it is for the coin to stay up. And then it kind of wobbles and falls. And so, um, so part of it is just put athletes that are new to trail on easier trail to run. Um, and then one of the skills that you build is your ability to get to navigate technical terrain more easily over time just by getting out and doing it so you start easy and then you get more technical more technical more technical over time uh, as you build that skill it's really an intuitive thing to build so there's not a there's not like a lot that goes into teaching it other than trying to talk conceptually through it to convince athletes to uh, embrace the flow concept, move faster, and not be so scared. Maybe one of the things we should do at first is just teach people how to fall. <laughs> and then they won't be so afraid of uh, that time when they I do mean, fall. I mean, it's a good point. I mean, that yeah. is a skill you got to think about, right? Yeah. As it relates to the proprioception concept, though, I do think there are potentially some cues or tips. You know, like I was watching on this rogue expedition trip that I talked about on the last episode, one of the guys in our group, Jacob, was really much better on the technical trail than I was. And so I was watching him a lot, just trying to kind of pick up little differences in how he moved versus how I moved. And you know, he seemed to kind of seamlessly go between like short, quick steps to kind of longer, like striding steps, depending on the terrain, which helped him flow more easily in ways that I wasn't naturally doing. And... So I was trying to kind of mimic some of his movements to just figure out for myself, you know, what was working better. And so to what extent are there some of those little cues that you can give people, whether they're, you know, on rocky terrain, uphill terrain, down on terrain, whatever, that just says, hey, look, here's some rules of thumb that you can just play with as you're trying to learn yourself how it works. So the first one would be look about 10 feet or so out in front of you as you're running and scan back in where your actual foot placement is at that time your your brain over time will kind of program what's in front of you and it'll use peripheral vision and that proprioceptive sense to to navigate that terrain without so much having to think about what you're doing with your foot right there in front of you if a lot of athletes just look at the ground right in front of out. them yeah. and they're worried about what that next step is what that next step is where that next rock is where that next root is and you really want to look out and i'm looking for a few things i'm not just looking for rocks or roots i'm also looking for snakes uh, I'm looking for like holes in the ground or obstructions on the trail, like branches that have fallen or something like that, that I could trip on. Um, and then, and then I'm reading the terrain. I'm, so I'm scanning back in, I'm letting that sort of sink in and process your brain works super fast. Right. And so then I'm getting over that. The next thing is, uh, so especially for the road runners we have out there, we always train you keep your arms in tight against you, uh, elbows back and you're, and you're driving your arms a lot. So when we're on the trail, you kind of, I keep my arms, my shoulders a little bit raised. My elbows are out to the side a little more. 
and uh, I'm using my upper body to balance. And so if I'm jumping, say I'm coming downhill and I'm like jumping off a ledge or something, my arms are actually kind of like coming up to balance that momentum and help me flow with the movement that I've got going on the trail, which is always changing. And so uh, a lot of upper body balance is important coming downhill, tight turns. I sometimes like flag an arm out to get counterbalance into the into tight turns and that sort of thing. Uh, and so those are the big two that I always start with. Um, and then you know, from there, you're just kind of figuring out how how you move, how you negotiate the trail, and it gets a little bit more individual, I think, for a lot of runners. There is something there, though, too, about choosing the right line. Definitely. Right? Yeah. I mean, so you're looking not at your feet. You're looking 10 feet ahead to kind of help you choose the right line, choose the path of least resistance, so to speak. Right. What are you looking for when you're choosing lines? Yeah, that, that's a good point. Uh, Steve and I kind of talked about this um, there's a brewery in Buena Vista called Eddie line. And so we got into this whole idea about how like kayakers are, are, are reading the river and they're riding this, this line that's going to keep them afloat. And so it's said the same thing. Um, really well-worn trails. You can see the path people have been taking and you can kind of choose that, but I'm trying to avoid big steps. I'm trying to avoid sharp rocks or like, getting my feet stuck in between two rocks that might be kind of close together as so those rocks will then ride up on the side of your feet and kind of cut you up a little bit. Um, and that, I think that's the main thing is what is the path of least resistance, both from an obstacle standpoint, but also from an energy investment standpoint. Uh, I, I don't want to keep jumping up ledges uh, or kind of climbing any sort of the terrain on a skirt around it where I can so that I'm investing as little energy as possible and then I want to make sure I'm avoiding obstacles that are uh, potentially going to trip me or in some other way cause me pain. What I, would you add? Well, first of all, I wouldn't... I, I wouldn't... The most important thing is to reiterate Jason's first statement, which is I owe every beginner trail runner that I've ever worked with, I'm like three to four feet in front of you. Um, I never thought of it starting at 10 feet and then moving back. I think that's a really, really good addition to that because I found that when I say three feet, people go to one, <laughs> right? So they're not, I mean three feet in front of where that lead foot will land. And so going 10 and then pulling back to three is really crucial because you want your eyes in about that five foot r away from your body range. And so doing that is, the only way to learn how to get proprioception appropriately. The second thing, so then, but to talk about lines and specifically, uh, I will tell people this also, the gr best line is not always the shortest distance from one place to another. That the best line frequently is the long way up. Um, because where you, because if you have to lift your knee, if you're going to run a race that's over, 10 miles on a trail and you have to lift your knee um, to the point where it goes above about a 45 degree angle or 45 degree um, range, you're not going to make very many of those over the course of a 10 mile race. You're going, your hip flexors are going to fail because they're just not ready for that unless you've done a lot of work at it. So you're talking about big steps up, big steps right? up, step up a ledge. If you thought about running upstairs, um, if you had a, if you went up one stair at a time, you'd be able to make it up to the top of the stair. And so it's way better to take three stairs than it is to jump up a third up, up those, that three stair 
distance or think of it as two stairs better to take two steps rather than one big step because right. that is always going to play out with less energy for a neuromuscular group that is highly used in trail running and is fatigues quickly it's just not um it's the spot when people get into the mountains that they first have no idea their glutes go weak and then they realize my hip flexor stopped fucking working and there's nothing you can do about it because you've taking too many steps and too many steps up so the idea of a line being the best route from point a to point b not necessarily the shortest um and not always the fastest um because uh you know there's uh and that's a real skill set um many mountain but anybody that's done any mountain biking um they will know the idea of a line because you can't descend on a mountain bike without learning very quickly because you're moving so much faster than what our bodies can do from a running perspective. Um, and many people who are good at mountain biking, th this idea of line will be absolutely natural to them. Whether or not they're physically capable of doing it um, from a flow standpoint or a fear standpoint will be crucial, but they get this idea of line. And learning the line is um, essential. Um, the other thing that I would say about uh, that's really crucial and critical uh, in regards to r road runners jumping to the trail is that um, it's really crucial to realize fundamentally that this trail is your friend. Like, I think so many people come to it and say, it's a thing to be afraid of, or it's a thing that might hurt me, or a thing that might not get me where I need. It, this is, it's good to slow down, it's your friend. It's gonna slow you down, and that's good. It's gonna require you to make more footsteps, more steps, that's good. It's going to engage all three of your planes, your sagittal plane, your, your transverse plane, your coronal plane. It's gonna make you work all these different areas. You're t rolling your ankle a little bit is good. All of these things, using different parts of your feet is good. Having to use your body in different ways is good. And so realizing that the trail is your friend and approaching it that way, you'll slow down at first, but eventually you'll begin to realize, wow, this is an entire experience of running that I don't get. The third dimension, as you talked about, Chris, is really what makes, I think, trail running sort of enter into that metaphysical spiritual realm where you get to commune with um, nature. And once you get that relationship with the trail, then you start opening up to what's actually happening with the trees, with the mountains, with the roll, with, with whatever, what other natural physical bodies that are there on a trail, in your trail running that are so amazing and make it such a different experience. So be, I think that's also really crucial is yeah, and I wanna, making friends with it. And I want to, and on that note, offer encouragement for people, for somebody who's bad at proprioception generally, or who's not well trained in it, it, at times for me, it's easy to get really frustrated and mad at the trail or mad at what I'm doing because I'm like, God, I suck at this. I feel like I'm tripping all the time. And, you know, yet in my runs, you know, on this trip I recently went on where I did about a week of runs, mostly on the trail. Within the runs, I got better as I went. And across the week, I got better as we went because I was just simply practicing it. And if you find yourself frustrated and you're like, gosh, I can't do this at all. Just keep at it. It will come to you with more practice. And so I just wanted to offer that encouragement. In terms of other trail-specific skill sets that people need to think about, besides just dealing with the technical train and proprioception, there's other stuff we haven't talked about yet. This idea of carrying things, you know, it's like if you're going to have a handheld or have something on your back because you've got a hydration pack or whatever, maybe you've got to learn 
to operate with that in you know in your running strength i think is important on a trail because it is more of a full body activity you know i know a lot of people get on the trail especially in some of our trail series races and they're they're just completely destroyed by the end because they don't realize that they're engaging their core they're using their upper body in ways that they hadn't really anticipated so some basic strength routine night running is important if that's going to be a part of your race learning how to do that with a headlamp at night and being able to deal with the tunnel vision that might come with that or whatever some people have nausea issues trying to run at night right so there's practice with that getting the right gear dialing in on nutrition there's a lot of other things that we're not going to get to today but we probably need to come back to because we're 90 minutes in but they really all tie back to this question of what does your race require and if you think about whatever distance you're going to do or dabble in and think about what you need to manage across all of that there's these other elements that i'm mentioning that you need to just simply practice and think about and work into your training in some way and when you get in the mountains you just altitude. have to stay alive altitude no, it's learning how to stay alive yeah. <laughs> hypothermia <laughs> Right. Yes. Nutrition. Right we didn't even talk about nutrition. Nutrition uh, yeah. is cri- is critical. I mean, for a road marathon, typically you can survive, you know, even if you're crappy with your nutrition. But if you're out there for 10 hours, 12 hours, you'll eight, die. 18 hours, you'll die or <laughs> you'll walk off the course. You might not die, but it's the number one cause of DNF in the, tri- in the ultra yeah, world anyway. It's poor nutrition. And so you can die because people who don't fuel don't think. And people who don't think make really bad decisions. And then they do really stupid shit. Like lay down on a trail. It's true. When they shouldn't. But that, <laughs> that nutrition on a trail in an ultra race is probably a topic unto its own For sure. in terms of these podcasts. So anyway, we're going to leave it at that as a good intro to trail training and trail racing. Hopefully we've piqued some interest out there. I definitely encourage anybody who's a road warrior to go try a trail race. It could be 10K, could be 10 miles, could be half marathon, marathon, whatever it may be. Go out there with no expectations except to finish. Have a good time with it. Experience it. See what you think. And then go from there. So with that, we'll end it. Thank you again, Jason, for joining us. We really appreciate it. We Actually, I do want to quickly mention before we sign off because I said I would. The Rogue Virtual, we're kind of in a small-scale test phase. But you're taking on a limited number of athletes to basically train them virtually. You've got some on the trail, I believe, maybe a road or two, a road or two athlete. But it's one-to-one virtual training that we're starting to build here in the context of all of our group training here at Rogue. So talk about that quickly. And if somebody wants to maybe reach out and maybe be a part of our, our test, what that might look like. Okay. Uh, so Rogue Virtual right now, uh, we're in a pilot program, as Chris mentioned. So we're kind of learning about how we're going to do this. Uh, from a business model perspective, we apply the same training principles um, for road marathoners or any other road distance racer that you would find in any group here at Rogue, and it's the same. We apply the principles we talked about here today for ultra running. Um, and so if you have questions about it, you're interested, you want to know more, you can get me, Jason, at roguerunning.com. And um, we, yeah, we... It's an entirely online experience, so we do everything uh, from building out running training to supplemental training, so cross-training, strength training to go with that, nutritional strategies, race strategies, recovery strategies. And the big difference with this is it's one-to-one, right? So talk just quickly about what what that difference is. So I guess the big difference is that um, 
We will help all of the athletes write every day of their programming. We start from the big picture strategy. We ask for long-term commitments to training so that we can really build a strategy around your long-term goals. Um, we take a pretty explicit requirement to mental training so that we can work on both the physical and the mental aspects of uh, how you tackle your goals. And we spend a lot of time talking about goals themselves, how we set goals, how we go after those goals, which is really important for the overall strategy. Um, and so you get you get one on one time to coach every week, regular communication throughout the weeks. Um, and, and so I think that's part of the big the big benefit of it, you know, is questions about what you need to do on a day to day basis or from here through the next two or three years. We will get you all the way. So there you go. So if you're interested in that and again, we're only taking kind of limited athletes, do reach out to Jason at roguerunning.com. Otherwise, we'll definitely come back to this trail topic. I think there's couple of other episodes at least out of this and we'll get jason back on but thank you again jason for joining us thanks everybody for listening this has been episode 94 the running rogue podcast as always you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on instagram twitter or the facebook at rogue running until next time we'll talk to you soon